If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. I hope you had a very Merry Christmas. This is the last of our December 2011 podcast and indeed the last of our 2011 podcasts at all. I hope you've enjoyed listening to us through the year. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com and you can follow us twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. This week, coming up, we have... There's a wonderful quote from Goethe. He says that he who cannot draw on 3,000 years is living from hand to mouth. That was Roman Krasnarich on learning life lessons from history. He was conscience first... Conviction second, country third, party fourth. That would be the line. And that was Bill Cash, MP, on 19th century reformer and parliamentarian John Bright. In his new book, The Wonder Box, cultural thinker Roman Krasnarich has created a self-help Bible with a difference. His guide to modern living draws on examples from the past to show how history offers lessons for our careers, relationships, social lives and other aspects of modern existence. The magazine's deputy editor Rob Attar spoke to him recently about this unusual approach. So just to start off, why do you think the past has been overlooked really as a guide of how to live? 
I think in the 20th century there was a rise of the self-help industry and the self-help book. And if you walk into a bookshop, you'll see that most books about the dilemmas of how to live are based on um, psychology or philosophy or religion, books about dealing with the dilemmas of love or career change. And I think in the 20th century there was a drawing on psychology and psychoanalysis particularly um, in order to get people to look inside themselves for the answers of how to live. But people haven't been looking so much at history. And I think there's a, there's a wonderful quote from Goethe. He says that he who cannot draw on 3,000 years is living from hand to mouth. And that was a guiding idea in the, the book that I've written, The Wonder Box, which is to see what great ideas can we get from the past for living today. You know, what can the ancient Greeks teach us about love? Or what can the tradition of Japanese pilgrimage teach us about the art of travel? Do you think one reason that people maybe haven't done this so much before is this notion of progress that people think they're somehow better than the people that came before and that they don't really need to learn anything from their antecedents? I think there is a sort of cultural bias towards that idea that we don't look to the past because we think that we have the new ideas, we live in an age of new technologies, the world is so different. But I think there have always been great historical thinkers, indeed, who've realised that we can learn so much from the past and that what we might think of as progress is not so progressive. So in the 17th century, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who also wrote history books, said that the principle and proper work of history is to instruct um, and to enable men by knowledge of actions past to bear themselves prudently in the present and providently in the future. And he saw that history could be applied to life and to politics and that we could learn something from it. He's someone who realised that we could gain great wisdom from looking into the past. And I think that's something we should do much more today. So I do think that you're right, that progress, in a way, has made us blind to drawing on the past. And do you feel that people maybe hold misconceptions about the nature of the past and, and the way things were, and that might be impeding them from drawing lessons from it? Absolutely. I think we often think about past civilizations as being less sophisticated than our own. But if you look at various topics of the art of living, for example, our attitudes towards love, Today, we're, I think, much more unsophisticated than, for instance, the ancient Greeks. We tend to use one word for um, the same word, love, for sending an email and signing it, lots of love, or whispering, I love you, over a romantic dinner. Um, but the ancient Greeks had six different words for love, which totally changed the way that they thought about their relationships. And I think we can learn a lot from them. And that's often the, the pattern in history, that by looking into the past, we can see much more interesting, sophisticated ways of thinking about our own lives. And have you managed to find a way to separate, in a very simplistic terms, the good ideas from the past from the bad ones that we wouldn't necessarily want to be replicating? Yeah, I think when you're trying to draw on the past for lessons for better living today, mm. you need to separate the really great ideas from the past that we should, in a way, steal, yeah. like the different varieties of love that the ancient Greeks had, for instance, or the... Um, different ways that people travelled in the past that we may have lost today. But you need to separate those from some of the more negative inheritances from the past. For example, if you look at the history of time, gradually we've become more and more obsessed by time and stressed by time. Yeah. Um, all of us have got um, the time displayed on our mobile phones, we've got um, watches strapped to our wrists, we can't get away from time, it's on every single wall, it's on our ovens, um, on little digital displays. But in the past, Time wasn't so much so constricting, it wasn't so dominant in our lives. And in a way we've had this inheritance of an increasing obsession with time. And it's something that once you know about how time has become more and more controlling of our lives, then you can look at it and say, well, maybe I don't want to accept that inheritance and do something different. So for instance, 
um, before around 1700, mechanical clocks just had our hands. You couldn't meet somebody at 11 minutes past three. Um, it wasn't until about around the early 18th century that most clocks started having minute hands. A century later, they started having second hands. Time and time, time got sliced into smaller and smaller pieces. And that's clearly affected the way that we live today. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we're rushing to meet deadlines and worrying that we're always late, like the White Rabbit and Alice in Wonderland. And actually, I think if we go to sort of earlier cultures, you'll see that that wasn't nearly the case. You know, Leonardo da Vinci wasn't looking at his watch every five minutes when painting The Last Supper. So from what you're saying, it seems that some aspects of our quality of life are actually being impaired by what we see as progress. That's right. I think that in some areas, take for example the area of work, one area that we see us, we, we think that we've progressed is in terms of the way we use our talents. Today, the standard way of thinking the best way to use our talents is become an expert in a narrow field, to become a specialist. Yeah. And that's an idea that comes out of the Industrial Revolution, primarily. It comes out of the idea of the division of labor, of dividing tasks into smaller and small, smaller portions, so that today we should be a corporate tax specialist or a pediatrician or a logo designer. And that's been a kind of progress. It's been part of economic progress, the division of labor and increase in productivity. But the effect on everyday life, I think, has been quite disastrous. Even in the 18th century, Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations said the division of labor and this specialization could create torpor of the mind um, in, in workers. It could make our working life very monotonous. And that's a reason, I think, to look at other parts of history where we can learn more about developing the many sides of our talents, looking to the idea of the Renaissance generalist, for example, people like Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci, um, who saw that it, the best way to be human was to develop the many sides of who we are. And the progressive idea of becoming a specialist in a narrow field is really possibly quite limiting to who we are. And actually, when you think about it, a lot of the real supposed geniuses through history have been polymaths. They, people like Leonardo da Vinci could do lots of different things. He wasn't just an artist. So it doesn't necessarily prevent you doing magnificent things in one particular field. That's right. I think what's interesting about Leonardo was that, in a way, art wasn't that important to him. He was also a scientist, he was a botanist, um, he was a musician, he was a philosopher of sorts, um, an anatomist. And what makes his work interesting to me is the way that he could draw connections between things. And I think in the modern world, it's that ability to draw connections between different fields, which is part of the center of um, thinking creatively and have it leading a more adventurous and broad life. Are there any particular areas of modern life do you think we've really lost touch with the past in? Yeah, I think that one of the areas, I think, is in parental care and family life. Today, we think of the super dad who can change nappies and cook up a gourmet meal as something totally new. But in fact, the house husband has a long historical tradition, particularly before the Industrial Revolution. And I think we've lost knowledge that men used to be much more involved in childcare than they, than they are today. Particularly in agricultural areas before the Industrial Revolution, um, economic life was much more focused on the household and family life. Men were working around the home, perhaps working in nearby fields. Um, the wife may well have been um, rocking the child, but the man would have built the cradle, would have cut the hay for the cradle, would have been cutting firewood um, for cooking and for you know, heating the home. Men were much more involved in housework and in looking after children, particularly also because of 
high rates of maternal mortality. Women were dying in childbirth. In fact, between 1600 and 1800, around one in four single parent households were headed by men. Today, that figure is around one in 12, which just shows that men were probably much more hands-on in the past. And today's super dads are reincarnations, in a way, from the past. Of course, during the Industrial Revolution, there was a, a growing separation between the work, the work that men did and women did. Women tended to stay in the home. It was men who went out and worked in the factories. And so I think that you know, if you're a young parent today, particularly if you're a man, you can look back to the pre-industrial period and think, actually, there's a great proud tradition of being yeah. a house husband. Let's embrace that. And that's one of the ways that I think his- history can really inspire us in the ways that we lead our everyday lives. Because there may be a lot of people now have an assumption that something that is now has just always been the case. So now that the traditional idea of the woman being more likely to be the person who's at home and care for the children, maybe people think that's just what's always happened. But often it hasn't been, these trends haven't been that long-standing. That's right. I mean, I think that the, the dominance of the male in the, um, or the husband working outside the home, you know, in, in the paid economy, and the woman working in the um, unpaid caring economy is something that's only been around for about 300 years. But what you can also do is not only look at the pre-industrial period, but look at indigenous cultures, um, whose everyday way of, ways of being today often embody historic ways of being. So for example, the Aka pygmies of the Western Congo Basin, Aka men are the world's most dedicated fathers. Um, for 47% of each day, they're either holding their infants or within one meter of them. And in fact, in sort of pre-modern societies, in around one in four of them, men have had a major parenting role. Of course, there's still a third of societies traditionally where men have, haven't lifted a finger to help in the household. But what you see when you look at history, and the further you go back in the past or looking at other cultures, is a huge variation in the landscape of childcare and housework. Um, and so if you look at the history of domestic life, you can see that men were much more involved. And you have to often look quite far in the past or quite far away from our contemporary culture to, to grasp that. And that actually seems to underline a point I noticed about your book, is it's often not just about going back to the past, but also sort of going across the world and drawing lessons from other people's histories as well as our own. That's right. Partly, if you're looking at the way that history has shaped us, you have to look at the history of your own culture mm. to, to think about the topic of um, the way we conduct our relationships you need to look at the history of Western culture because in the West we are products of that culture, the idea of romantic love or the idea of finding a soulmate. At the same time, we can look to other cultures um, and spread our minds broadly in order to find good ideas for everyday living, which we can apply today. So you can go to Ming Dynasty China, for instance, and find interesting ideas about caring for our parents. You can look to indigenous cultures for um, uh, talking about fatherhood. Um, You can go you know, to other parts of the world, um, for example, to the Kalahari Bushmen, to see how they, their attitudes to work have evolved, the amount of leisure time they have, and how that compares to how we conduct our leisure time today. So I think there's fantastic lessons from all around the world, and that's one of the reasons in the Wonder Box I've tried to um, think as broadly as possible, not only look at our European and North American inheritances, but to see what good ideas lie in the past that we could steal for our uh, everyday dilemmas today. Have you found it easy to try and incorporate these ideas into your own life, actually sort of practically applying this theory? Um, That's one of the great um, benefits of writing a book like this, because I'm constantly looking at history and seeing, well, how can I apply this to everyday life? Looking at the history of the house husband, 
really surprised me to see how much men were involved in childcare in the past. And that's changed my attitudes to looking after my own children. I've got three-year-old twins, and it's made me spend much more time with them. But even with topics like death, for example, and there's a chapter on death style in the Wonder Box, because I think we'd ought to talk about death style as much as lifestyle. Um, you know, when you look at the past, you see how much more death was part of everyday life that even up, in the 19th, up to the 19th century, community funerals were much more common, that if someone died, everybody in the community, even strangers, would sometimes go to the funeral. Or if you look back to the late medieval period, um, children played in cemeteries with, with bones, that even um, uh, trade fairs and um, lovers would meet in cemeteries, which were often the most vital places yeah. and the most energizing places um, in towns like Rome, in Paris, in London. And what you can learn from that is, and what I've personally learned from that, is that we ought to be talking about death much more in everyday life and not be so afraid of it. It remains one of the great taboo topics of the 21st century, just like talking about sex was taboo in the 19th century. And I think if we talked about death more and saw how death was talked about more in the past, and much more part of everyday life, we'd be able to confront our own fears of death more readily, deal with problems of bereavement, um, and a whole load of topics linked to... Um, the realities of our mortality. Because in the past, as you say, death was just much more part of everyday life. Nowadays, I think maybe because people die more privately and they live much longer, it seems to have faded a bit. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the great innovation in the last century is the rise of the hospital death. People used to die at home. You know, in the 19th century, someone was dying. You would, you would see them expire before you. You'd see them just before they died. Now people are shut away in hospitals. 25% of people die in hospitals. Another 25% or so die in hospices or nursing homes. And that means we're very divorced from death. And I think it's something that we've lost. In a way, we need to try and bring ourselves closer to that. But again, you can look to other cultures and see that death culture is still very vibrant. Go to Mexico in early November and you will see the festival of the Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, where children can buy sugar skulls from shops. You can buy pan de muerto, yeah. dead bread, bread in the shape of skulls and crossbones. And that is a culture in Mexico where death hasn't been so pushed away. And I think it's a much healthier way of living. And those death rituals, in fact, go back to um, death culture brought across to the Americas um, by the Spanish conquistadors. So again, looking at history is something that can really inform how we live today. And are there any, um, any people from the past that have particularly inspired you in doing your research? One of the people who's inspired me most is the humanitarian Dr. Albert Schweitzer. In the first half of the 20th century, he was one of the most famous people on the planet. Most people have forgotten about him today, even though he won a Nobel Peace Prize in around 1950. He was born in 1875 in the French-German border region of Alsace-Lorraine. And by his 20s, he was one of Europe's great polymaths, a brilliant scholar and musician. He had PhDs in three subjects, in theology, music, and philosophy. He was one of Europe's greatest organists. He studied with Vidor in Paris. He was head of the theological seminary um, in Strasbourg. He was an all-round literary and intellectual superstar. But on the day of his 30th birthday, he gave it all up and decided to train as a doctor and to take medical knowledge of the West to West Africa. And he went to work with indigenous people and set up a hospital, particularly for lepers. And he ended up working there until he was 90 years old and became famous for his humanitarian work in the West African jungle. And he inspires me in two ways. Firstly, because I think so many of us are afraid of changing careers. We often think even by the age of 30, it's too late to go in a new direction. And there was Schweitzer who gave up 
um, his career at the top, he was at the height of his career in many ways as an intellectual and philosopher and musician. And when he did something totally different, being a doctor, he wasn't even particularly good at being a doctor, he was very dedicated. And the other way he's inspired me is because he tried to put his ethics, put his values into his working life. He tried to close the gap between his beliefs and his everyday actions. So, he, of course, he loved playing the organ, but he realized that taking medical knowledge to the colonies was for him a much more, going to be a much more fulfilling way of living. And that's something I've tried to do in my own life, to try and have my values expressed in the work I do and what I write about. If you were to be writing this book a hundred years from now, what lessons from today do you think there are any positive things that we're doing that we could then bring into our lives in, those, in the future? I think we're becoming much more innovative in the way that we conduct relationships. For example, Facebook culture is getting us to think about making new kinds of connections between people, having conversations across cultures, having conversations with people in different countries. And there's a great sort of flux in the way that we conduct relationships. And that's something that we might look back on um, in the future and see that maybe we're finding more interesting ways to fall in love, you know, with online dating, for example. Yeah. At the same time, I think we'll look back at today and perhaps see um, ways of living that were disastrous in many ways. For example, our high carbon fossil fuel-led lifestyles. I think in a century from now, people are going to look back and say, well, what were they doing? Um, and that if people in a hundred years from now were trying to learn from history, they might think, well, we need to probably wean ourselves off materialism in order to have sustainable lifestyle on the one planet that we all share. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. 
Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. That was Roman Krasnarich. His book, The Wonder Box, Curious Histories of How to Live, has just been published by Profile. Now it's time for our historical trivia moments. This week's bit of trivia has been emailed to us by Carol Small. At the end of the Seven Years' War, from 1756 to 1763, the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, just off the coast of the Canadian island of Newfoundland, were retained by France. So to this day, North America comprises the US, Canada and a very small fragment of France. If anyone would like to email in with further historical facts, we'll gladly read them out and give you a name check. Email us, podcasthistoryextra.com, with those facts. Next up, Bill Cash, MP, has recently written a biography published by I.B. Taurus of the 19th century politician John Bright, who, by coincidence, is also Bill Cash's great-grandfather's cousin. In the 200th anniversary year of Bright's birth, I interviewed Bill Cash in the Houses of Parliament. OK, so first question, um, John Bright, if you could just introduce us to him. Who was he and what did he do? Well, I think the first question is, who is John Bright? Because frankly, uh, he's been largely forgotten by many, many people, whereas in fact he was one of the greatest statesmen of the 19th century. Uh, he was the one of the greatest orators, if not the greatest orator of the 19th century. And of course, he led the campaign, not only with Cobden for the repeal of the Corn Laws, in 1846, which was to relieve the uh, poverty that people were experiencing from the high cost of, of bread and so forth, uh, but also initiated the notions of free trade, but then moved on to parliamentary reform and with meetings of up to 200,000 people um, and with a massive campaign over nine years, uh, forced the issue into reform by Disraeli in 1867, which effectively quadruple the vote for the working class. So really this is a, an enormous character, huge personality, but also a, a man very much of the people. He was also very much involved in the American Civil War, and when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, um, they had to obviously uh, take the clothes off his blood-sodden body and so forth. And when they did, they found various objects in his clothes, one of which was a pair of glasses, a handkerchief, and a $5 Confederate note, uh, but also uh, a testimonial from John Bright, which he'd obviously, Abraham Lincoln had had on his body for a very long time, calling for the re-election of Abraham Lincoln. They go into Abraham Lincoln's study, and there are two photographs, and only two, and one of them is of John Bright. And all that is representative of the fact that Bright supported the North against slavery, despite the fact that his Prime Minister, Palmerston, and Russell, the Foreign Secretary, and Gladstone were all in favour of the South. So he had to take on his whole party. He took on his whole party, for example, as a backbencher over the Crimean War and was ultimately vindicated. So we're talking about somebody who also did much the same with regard to the Irish question because he supported the Irish tenantry for land reform and in the relation to the empire, he also campaigned in India, or for India, he didn't go to India, he was offered the job as Secretary of State for India, but he actually went uh, to, to the lengths of uh, trying to change the relationship between Britain and the empire by promoting the rights and the administrative 
opportunities for the indigenous people of India and also uh, that their, and their education. But they did the same with regard to the colonies as well, against brutality, for example, in, in, in uh, the insurrection in Jamaica and so on. And then right at the end, uh, he breaks with the Liberal Party over Westminster sovereignty because he believes that home rule should not go ahead. And he joins up with Joe Chamberlain, and then um, he dies in 1889. But in, in Gladstone's own words in the eulogy, uh, I paraphrase, but he says, there was no cause that John Bright did not campaign for with his heart and mind, which he didn't win. But he also added... Uh, but it was almost impossible to get Bright to accept office because he wasn't interested in office. He was conscience first, conviction second, country third, party fourth. That would be the line. And uh, he was completely consistent in almost everything. I mean, nobody is perfect. And, uh, but he was an amazing orator. And during the Crimean War, for example, I mean, he makes this speech. Uh, I, I haven't got the precise words, but it is uh, a speech which is listened to with complete silence in the House of Commons, with this one man standing up against the war. And you can imagine if it had been the Iraq War or Afghanistan or whatever. And uh, he, he says, the angel, I, I, I can, I, I see the angel of death hovering over the land. I can almost hear the beating of his wings. I mean, this isn't the precise thing, but th that's what he said in effect. And uh, I mean, it just the House of Commons was completely stunned into silence. And so you've got this enormous interaction of political will, conscience, oratory, and consistency of principle all from the back benches. He was a Quaker and he uh, came from Rochdale and in fact I, I was, uh, went up on the 200th anniversary of his birth uh, on the 16th of November to Rochdale and paid my respects to his grave. He was my great-grandfather's cousin and I, I think I was probably one of very few, if anybody else, who actually went there. It's a, it's a plain stone slab in the Quaker's burial ground there isn't even a, a, head, a headstone. And um, it just says, John Bright, born 1811, died 1889. Doesn't even say he was an MP. So that really, in a way, symbolizes his complete and total commitment to the things that he believed and fought for. I may be um, misreading this, but it seems to me that he was pretty much consistently sort of swimming against the tide, always, always on the, you know, against everyone else. Did he lack an ability to compromise? Was that, was that part of his makeup? Uh, no, except on matters of absolute principle. But to judge whether he's swimming against the tide, and to put it in other words, was he one of the awkward squad? The answer is emphatically no, because when you consider what he was up against, it was the aristocracy and privilege in order to be able to to remedy injustice to, to, to the working class, uh, that once he got past the point of establishing their freedom to be able to have bread at a reasonable price, which he did with Cobden, must never be underestimated, that relationship, um, he then moves on to the other marketplace, which is the marketplace of, of the freedom of democracy. So it's freedom, which is the driving force, and justice. And therefore, if you're swimming against the tide of aristocratic uh, imposition, then obviously you have to swim against the tide, but you also have to defeat the tide. 
and that's what he did. So it's a monumental act of will, and he did have several breakdowns during the, the course of his parliamentary career. There were two in particular, uh, where he had to rest very substantially for quite a long time, because his energy was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and uh, he uh, was, by any reasonable standards, proved to have been right. Uh, I mean, nobody would say you shouldn't repeal the Corn Laws, and even Peel himself, actually, originally very hesitant about it, in fact against it originally, came to the conclusion that he was right. And there's a famous moment when Cobden and Bright are harassing him in, I think it's 1845, and um, in the House of Commons, and he, uh, Peel turns to his um, uh, colleague next to him and he says, you must answer this for I cannot. And then he decided he had to repeal the Corn Laws, and he did so within a year. But that split the Conservative Party. So we're talking about, as you put it, swimming against the tide, but also swimming with progress. So for practical purposes, he is a kind of symbol of uh, progress in the 19th century. Uh, there is a question mark over his attitude towards the Factories Act, uh, which I deal with in the book. And uh, it is um, that there were people like Lord Ashley uh, who wanted to prevent people who are young and women from working long hours in the factories. And John Bright's attitude was above all else, and we have to think of it in those terms in those days, however difficult it may be, that they were actually able to get work. And the people in John Bright's own factory, because he was a cotton manufacturer in Richdale, actually, uh, they, were, they, had their, uh, they had education provided. I mean, th there, was no state con there was no state provision. So effectively, he would say it is better for them to be able to work and also, therefore, to be able to pay for the cost of their food and so forth. Uh, it's not the kind of argument that would be uh, the kind of thing we'd easily live with today, but by comparison, those in the rural areas, he points out, were being paid uh, eight shillings a week, whereas in my factory they're paying 16, 16 shillings a week. So that for practical purposes, um, th that is an issue which is debated, and uh, I think myself that uh, he comes out of it well, but um, not everybody would share that view. There was a, it was a stick that was used to beat him, wasn't it? The fact yes. that he was a factory owner and was against these... That's these right, and, um, uh, he, but, but he, he did write a memorandum, which I refer to in the book, in which he actually says, you know, we have got to improve the situation. I mean, he wasn't blinkered, he just simply thought that it was a matter on balance of importance to ensure that people had work and also that the factories could be get going. And indeed, um, when he died, uh, the people paid the most enormous uh, respects and grief for the fact that he'd passed on uh, in, in the factory and, of course, in the, in the town as well. You've mentioned Cobden quite a few times, and they yes. were sort of partners, weren't Inseparable. they? Inseparable, absolutely. Who was more important? Uh, the, on the economics, uh, Bright would uh, defer to, to uh, Cobden. There's no question about that. They were absolutely inseparable. By the way, they didn't always agree. Uh, Cobden actually was more uh, hesitant, to say the least, about uh, supporting the North. Uh, he wasn't in favour of the South in the American Civil War. He wasn't in favour of the South, but he didn't really much like the idea of interfering in other countries' affairs, particularly with economic consequences. Um, and, and Bright was definitely right and Cobden was wrong on that. Uh, and then um, also, uh, I think that uh, Cobden was rather concerned that Bright was going 
too far and too quickly on parliamentary reform. Uh, so they, 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 it, was a, it was a relationship of partnership of equals, bright on the political oratorical side, Cobden on the economic. But when Cobden died, which is in 1865, he was devastated and you know, he, he, he couldn't speak in the House of Commons and everybody was absolutely uh, grief-stricken for Bright because he, he lost his greatest friend. Just to wrap up, because I know you've, you've got to... Um, your, your contention is basically we don't, we don't know enough about Bright today. He's not yes, a familiar figure. that is what, correct. Why would you say that's the case? I think what happened was that, bear in mind, he, he'd never been Prime Minister uh, or Foreign Secretary and frankly wouldn't have wanted to have been. Um, he was offered jobs in the Cabinet, but the, as Gladstone says in his eulogy, it was almost impossible to get Bright to accept office. Uh, and I think that because he was driven by conscience, conviction and principle and country, that um, after a space of biographies, and there were a lot of them, I mean, I've counted well over 20, uh, plus uh, the, the magisterial Trevelyan uh, biography, um, there wasn't one really until the 1970s when Keith Robbins writes one, and then after that, none at all. And so my book, it's called John Bright, Statesman, Orator, Agitator, um, is the first biography, it happens to be on the 200th anniversary of his birth, uh, is the first one since, I think, 1979. Now, why is this? Because I think it was unfashionable after Trevelyan had written his book in 1913 and thereabouts uh, to dwell on principle and conviction and conscience. And you have to remember, too, that Bright was a Quaker. So uh, he was accused of moralizing. Uh, actually, when you read this amazing oratory and the sheer intellectual command of the subject matter, which, by the way, people like Gladstone Disraeli shared as well, I mean, these were giants. And the idea that anyone would actually have written any of their speeches is unthinkable, if you consider what goes on these days. And therefore, I think people, first of all, forgot the stature but, but the, and the issues of principle and the tide that they had to contend with against them and the causes of the problems which they had to remedy. But at the same time, we move into a period in the early 20th century much more to do with prosaic questions, much more to do, for example, uh, they, he was not at all keen on war. So I don't think that those who had uh, been overly enthusiastic about the First World War would have been very interested in Bright's attitudes towards war. I mean, he constantly criticised the Crimean War, he attacked the government over it, and he was the opposite of jingoistic, although he wasn't a complete pacifist. So I think he, he just wasn't fashionable in the period of the 1920s, 30s, and then, of course, you get into the, uh, first, uh, the Second World War. Uh, I think if you ask Winston Churchill what did he think about John Bright, he would have been very, very uh, laudatory. He would have thought a great deal of him. Well, because they shared the same quality of oratory, um, and uh, they were statesmen, 
and they got things in the right order. I don't think they would have agreed about quite a lot of things, but that is not necessarily uh, a reason for statesmen not being able to give maximum admiration and respect uh, for their uh, opponents. And I mean, Disraeli asked Bright to join in a coalition on several occasions. And the, the descriptions in the book of uh, the meetings, which are in Bright's diaries, because he kept pretty comprehensive diaries, uh, of his meetings with Disraeli are to be seen to be believed. They're absolutely fascinating. And he gets Disraeli completely right. Um, but uh, there's much more to it. I mean, he's writing the diaries as a record uh, of things that matter to him. It, it's not, if I may say, it's not gossipy diary at all. Though there's some very interesting uh, indicators, for example, trying to get inside the mind of Disraeli by reading Disraeli's novels. And it's not written for public people to read tomorrow or even next year or the year after. And in fact, they weren't published until 1930. So it's, it's, he dies in 1889, and they're not published till 1930. And I think there was a certain amount of uncertainty about whether the family wanted them published anyway, but they did. And it's a great asset uh, to be able to see them, because you get inside the mind of a really great statesman, um, not in any way to take away from the greatness of the likes of Gladstone and Disraeli. But if there had been, shall we say, a dinner party, if I can put it in these simple terms, and there were, uh, let's say, Peel, Disraeli, Gladstone and Salisbury sitting there, and there was an empty space, and maybe Abraham Lincoln as well, that would be difficult to get him across the Atlantic, but if you actually had such a, a, a dinner party, and there was an empty chair, and they said, but who who, whose is the empty chair? And they would look at one another and they... And I think all of them would have said, well, John Bright. That was Bill Cash, MP. His book, John Bright, Statesman, Orator, Agitator, is published by I.B. Taurus now. That's it for this week. I hope you'll join us for the first of our 2012 episodes. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Thank you for listening and have a very happy new year. Thank you.